Hello and welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Act Media. I'm Christine Becker. And I'm Michael Kackman. What's going on, Michael? Well, it's been a busy month. It's been a tumultuous month, one might say. October always is. You know, you can feel the waning of the seasons, the coming of the fall, mm. the chill in the air. When we last left Michael and Chris, they were talking about a chill in the air. But a chill was also about to come into the broadcast booth. It was a chill swept in by some new members of the Acamedia team who volunteered to help. But would they only hurt? Would the chill of suspicion and secrets only bring trouble for Michael and Chris? Today's fast, nerve-wracking pace is making millions suffer from the discomforts of gastric hyperacidity. Eating on the run, working under pressure, nervous tension, and smoking more than you should, all help cause the trouble many know as American stomach. Bicidol mint-flavored tablets help neutralize the excess acids that cause this discomfort. They soothe irritated membranes while gently helping to restore normal balance. So next time you're upset and distressed due to acid indigestion, remember to take Bicidol mint-flavored tablets, that's all. You'll like their refreshing mint flavor, and they're so handy to carry. That's spelled B-I-S-O-D-O-L. Twice it all, mint-flavored tablets. Only 25 cents. But you know, there's been some uh, interesting developments in academia land. Um, I wanted to tell you, I've been... I've, I've actually been spending a lot of time talking to Stephanie Brown and Joel Neville Anderson about... about the kinds of things that they might do to contribute to the show. It sounds mm-hmm. like they might be interested in doing interviews and maybe some hosting, maybe some editing, maybe some maybe some producing work. Some hosting. You're saying Well, it just it just seemed like we it seemed like we had such good rapport and I felt like, you know, we I just, you know, Joel and I, we were talking and it just I, I don't know what happened. It just seemed like we were we had this kind of Chemistry, it's, it, it's, it's not something, it's not something, it's beyond my control. Is that why you haven't called me all month? Is this what's happening here? It's, Are you having an affair, basically, with other hosts? I, Michael, it's not like that. Be honest with me. It's, it, it's not like that. You, Chris, you can't understand. You don't, you don't know what it's like. Tell me what it's like, Michael. Do you understand what it's like for me to come back here every month to try to do this podcast? And now I'm finding out you might be kicking me to the curb. And in this month of all months. What are you talking about? This month is the most difficult month in the calendar for emotions, for just tearing me apart. You've got the Cubs just lost. They tanked in the playoffs, Michael. It's October. It's midterm week. I'm dying from anger at reading midterms. What do you expect me to do? The job market. Have you seen the job market out there, Michael? This isn't my fault. On top of everything, it's not my fault. You're gonna drop this bombshell on me. I can't take this. Well, I I can't I can't emotionally deal with this not right now. Not on top of the Cubs and everything. I don't I I don't know how to respond to that. So maybe we could just listen to this interview that Chris did. I hope it's not her last interview. 
with Vicky Johnson about sports fandom and emotion. Victoria E. Johnson is an associate professor of film and media studies at the University of California, Irvine. She is the author of the book Heartland TV, which examines the imagination of the American Midwest as symbolic heartland in critical moments in primetime television and U.S. social history. And the book was awarded the Catherine Singer Kovacs Book Prize Award from SCMS in 2009. Her current research projects examine the cultural history of U.S. television through the lens of sports media and the marketing of masculine sports culture to a post-Title IX generation of women. Her forthcoming book, Sports Television, will be published by Rutledge, and she has a forthcoming book chapter on discourse surrounding LeBron James's exit from and return to the Cleveland Cavaliers. I am joined by Victoria Johnson. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to Acamedia. Thanks. It's great to be with you. I wasn't sure I'd be capable of doing this interview because I've just about been doing nothing but crying the past two days as I uh, recover from the Cubs' dreadful performance in the NLCS uh, and also fight the anger of White Sox fans on my Facebook feed making fun of the Cubs. Um, So why do I care so much? Why does sports fandom breed this extreme joy and anger? Um, I want you to be my therapist here at the start. Why can't I just shrug this off and move on? Uh, because it's about love, Chris. It's love, and uh, and and that's that's something through which we we continually grow, but can also be be crushed to our very core. Um, <laughs> no, I, I had a I had a, uh, a colleague once say to me that his father said that sports is the only thing that is true. I think there's really something to that in terms of our dedication to our teams and the passion that they inspire. I mean, for me, uh, sports fandom and sports have always been about community and kind of sense of belonging, which is, you know, about love, right? It's affective. Um, But there's something about sports that seems also really sincere, um, in ways that other venues in media, I think, often don't. So I, there's something going on about a connection between a kind of authenticity, sincerity, and truth when it comes to sports. Um, it's also one of the few realms in which grown men are allowed to cry in public, um, which is something I find very interesting about sports as well. It's a rare domain of emotional expression within a masculine uh, dominant culture. And again, these are sort of ideas that my own work is trying to struggle through right now because there's ways in which sports fandom, because it's a masculine domain, doesn't get constructed as irrationality when it's emotional. Um, whereas, for instance, you know, uh, tween fans of boy bands are always sort of portrayed as irrationally, emotionally invested. But I think, you know, rock and roll and sports are sort of venues where kind of masculine domains of fandom where expressions of emotion and, and sadness, for instance, are socially acceptable. And I find that an interesting issue around sports. This also reminds me of, there's a famous Jerry Seinfeld monologue about how sports fandom at its heart involves just rooting for shirts. And I want to play this real quick so people know what I'm referring to. So here's a clip of Jerry Seinfeld's monologue. Loyalty to any one sports team is pretty hard to justify. 
Because the players are always changing, the team can move to another city. You're actually rooting for the clothes when you get right down to it. You know what I mean? You are standing and cheering and yelling for your clothes to beat the clothes from another city. <laughs> Fans will be so in love with a player, but if he goes to another team, they boo him. This is the same human being in a different shirt. They hate him now. Boo! Different shirt! Boo! So what is it about the lure of those shirts and getting deeper into some of the stuff you've already been talking about? What aspects of identity are at root here? Like what ideological, regional, racial, gendered identities are woven into the fabric of those shirts that we become emotionally tied to? You know, this is um, one of the issues that was certainly at play in the outcry over LeBron James moving originally from Cleveland to Miami and then now back to Cleveland is this uh, notion that he somehow was betraying his community, even though he actually never left his kept his home in Akron the whole time. But this idea that, you know, he became a traitor to that to that jersey, to that community and that brand also. Of course, some people, you know, identify maybe more with the individual star or player. But yeah, I think the jersey, I mean, obviously represents community, represents a particular kind of history. I mean, certainly for Cubs fans, you know, jersey represents a kind of character, you know, through adversity of so many years, right? This idea that you just stayed loyal all this time. I mean, similar to pretty much Mm -hmm. every franchise in Cleveland. Um, which has this noted, like, well, I, in spite of the adversity work, in fact, because and through it, I am a Clevelander. And so this is the jersey. These are the jerseys I wear. And of course, then, you know, the jersey thing is really a great concept because, you know, that's how also fans are established to other fans as being fair weather. I was just joking with a friend the other day that we're going to see so many more Cubs hats and jerseys now right like all of a sudden there'll be this whole community of new cub fans um and i'm wondering what the long-suffering hardcore cub traditionalists feel about that you know is it a good thing that this may become like the new baseball america's team or is it betrayal of all of that hard-won loyalty I've always found that a fascinating resentment because it is the case most often diehard fans resent bandwagoners. And I think it probably comes back to a certain notion of affect that I have invested this emotional toil year after year and you're just coming on (laughs) to, you know, to kind of pluck this off the top. I've never been against bandwagoners because for me, the more joy anyone can have, the better. I will not deny anyone their joy, but it also is the case. They aren't simply going to have the same joy I have because of that emotional investment. But it, I think it, a lot of it comes down to that notion of I have put this in, you know, this work in and you haven't, and that's not fair. That's such a curious way to, to judge other people's fandom. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it, I think there's some, in terms of academic geek speak, theoretically, there's some connection there to the question of sincerity as a realm of affective commitment and truth. The the longtime fan who knows the history and all the statistics and is somehow more authentically sincere. That also often gets gendered because as a female uh, sports fan on social media, for instance, um, I was making fun of the Braves once. 
and I, I've never been harassed on Twitter except for that. I got flooded with this harassment from Braves fans, and much of it was based in my gender. It was like, oh, you're a woman. You don't know about sports. Shut up. Um, and, you know, what do you know? And there is that kind of pressure, and this comes up especially now with sports journalism, female sports reporters, about you're a woman you can't possibly know. And that's another frustrating gendered aspect of, of fandom. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think social media is particularly vicious in those ways across forums, across genres. But yes, yeah, sports, definitely. Well, another component of, of that is when we were talking before this interview, you mentioned you, and I feel the same way, you get conflicted sometimes about rooting for sports, and especially so many of the major professional sports we root for are heavily masculinized, um, and they're violent, and we are watching bodies being crushed and then have to think about the consequences of concussions and so forth. Or this especially resonates for me with college football, that I have students who I'm watching. It's, it's a really difficult position to be put in. So I wonder if you could speak to that, both perhaps as a sports fan, but also a scholar of sports and dealing with these conflicting emotions over what you're investing in. I agree. I mean, that's in- incredibly conflicted terrain, especially because I historically have been primarily a football fan myself. And I had historically also avoided doing scholarly work on realms of which I was a big fan. I mean, yeah, I just kind of wanted to keep those spheres separate. But I started turning to sports because it just felt like such a giant gap in the literature of television and media studies. And part of the reason, obviously, that gap existed was because television studies, as I grew up through it, was explicitly a feminist project in terms of writing back into history the unwritten histories of female viewers and producers and the joy of media uh, in gendered terms um, and the ways in which that was very productive potential political space. So I think a lot of the really, really wonderful scholars who work on television had not really wanted to look at sports because it's so explicitly a kind of masculine domain of dominant cultural investment. So I came at it, as I often do, through the kind of counterintuitive question about, well, given that it's this masculine domain, Why is, for instance, the NFL so invested in cultivating female audiences? And so I recently worked on a project about the campaign last year in Pinktober, but also merchandising NFL for Her, um, the Verizon commercials, you know, featuring women football fans. This season, the NFL has turned to embrace an even more invigorated explicitly gendered campaign about football as football is family. So I decided, well, I can address both my ambivalence about being a fan in a day and age where I'm convinced that CTE really is caused by the sport, through the sport, and obviously all of the other kind of gendered issues around the violence of the game. But I could maybe start to address my own ambivalence by looking at how female fandom functions for the corporation. How does female fandom actually function in the interests of the NFL, which itself has become a huge media industry? Well, that actually comes up as a thread in, uh, you have a forthcoming anthology chapter about LeBron James, his, the decision and then the return. And I got a sneak peek of that. It was a great read. So uh, listeners out there, you can look forward to that being published. But that was 
one of the threads of the article that there is this affective investment in sports for fandom that works both in concert with what teams are trying to do economically and in branding, and then sometimes in tension with that. And I thought the LeBron case was a really uh, interesting example. Yeah, I was really intrigued with the LeBron James issue because, you know, my, my primary research area is about cultural geography and the ways in which media helped it construct a sense of place. And when LeBron made his decision, which was really failed television on every level um, with ESPN, his decision, his announcement to leave Cleveland for Miami, the backlash in the broader media was so intense and so gendered. First of all, the gendering of the response to the decision seemed to me about trying to diffuse the potential threat that LeBron James seemed to represent to establishment figures and ways of being in sports, the sports economy realm, as a young African-American superstar who really did have control of his economic and professional destiny. Um, and that that itself seemed so threatening that it had to be rewritten in some way. What happened was people started talking about the decision as uh, no longer a sports media or news event, but as reality TV. And so the coverage of the decision recast LeBron James from being this superstar sort of savior figure for the community of Cleveland to being the bachelor bestowing roses upon different cities that were courting him, but in very, I would say, quite cruelly uh, gendered ways that feminists are entirely familiar with. So that was really very intriguing to me. How do you, how do you cast the downfall of a hero? Well, of course, you feminize him, right? And so then when the return to Cleveland happens, how do you then automatically restore his masculine sort of, well, the rhetoric then became about how he had grown in his time in Miami into a patriarchal presence. So not only was his masculinity fully restored, but he was genuinely returning to Cleveland with this new knowledge uh, a new maturity, and as a mentor to those who will come up behind him with the Cavaliers. Uh, so the return discussion was also clearly gendered in ways that would restore LeBron to a kind of masculine, dynastic power within the region. One other component of the decision, of course, was, and the return and all of that, is all of this stuff then gets talked about through all sorts of, of media. And, and certainly there's an element of sports fandom that's stayed at the core of, of fandom for decades. But now we have ways that go beyond just consuming sports on, on radio or on TV and their social media and so forth. And especially the social media angle I find intriguing because of the importance of live sports to getting people to watch and tune in to, to sports today. And that's become a key part of how I consume this content. And I thought of this recently last week, and my apologies to any uh, University of Michigan listeners out there uh, for me bringing this up, but the ending of that Michigan-Michigan State game, I was watching it live with my husband, just sort of screaming, losing my mind. And then the first 
first thing I did after that was grab my phone because I wanted to see what people were saying on Twitter. And I knew what they were going to be saying. They were saying the same thing I was, but I wanted to see other people saying that. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the new media component of sports today. And has that changed some of this emotional investment? Has it augmented some of what was already there? I I think both. What I find about social media platforms and also the extended cable universe, um, because I'm still cabled, is the mobility of home that it allows. So, for instance, I can watch the regional Fox Sports Network coverage of my hometown university basketball team, even though I live on the West Coast. So, periodically, I will get to see literally like friends of mine who have season tickets in the arena and connect with the home team from afar. So I think social media also helps enable that, uh, that keep you connected to the community that you identify with as a fan, whether or not you live there. But also the liveness, I mean, I've written elsewhere about how sports is both the oldest form of media in terms of still doing what television does better than any other medium, while also being the most adaptable for new media platforms. This is another issue with social media that I struggle with a bit because I don't want to root too vociferously for my team on social media because now I have I have a friend who's a fan of any team. So if I'm making fun of some team, I'm literally rooting for a friend to be sad. And that's that's a maybe I take that more personally than other people do. Um, but that's another thing, that notion of of thinking about how other people are going to react emotionally. Yeah. That's what I mean. This year, I was very quiet during the baseball playoff. I never posted anything during the baseball playoffs because my allegiances have been, I don't know, odd over the last several years in terms of baseball. And I, I have a tremendous amount of Cubs fans and Cardinals fans that I've owned since like second grade. So both of those universes are always, and in fact, what's been kind of fascinating to me is there's been a lot of back and forth between the Cardinal fan friends and the Cub fan friends um, this year, a lot more than I've seen in the past. And also because of my California ties, I have a lot of Dodger fan friends. And so it's, yeah, I've just basically stayed out of all of it this year as a result. That's probably the safest idea. Well, I wanted to end on, get back to this point you raised earlier about the notion of, sports being true, that there really is something genuine there. And it's difficult, and especially even thinking through some of the things you talked about with the NFL very strategically courting and, you know, even with the CTE stuff, even seemingly covering stuff up. And yet, I think part of my fandom, why I keep coming back is because it does really feel like there's something genuine there. And it's, you know, amazing to watch athletes do these things. So I wonder if you could speak to that balance between contrivance, manipulation, and then just the feeling at our heart that there's genuine investment in what's really going on in a sport that then feeds our emotional ties to it. Again, it's like I'm always drawn to objects that are completely paradoxical. So sports, while being the most highly mediated of any kind of genre of television, uh, seems to not be messed with. You know, we have all kinds of access to clearly constructed images, but somehow on the field of play, it has to, you know, come down to actually moving the ball or whatever. So it seems less mediated 
Um, and I think that notion of a kind of ideology of presence and liveness that we often talk about with our students is integral to sports. You really do feel like you have to be present at it happening in ways that you don't with things you can DVR and time shift and things like that. And that presence implies a sort of shared community, I think. But it also looks really beautiful. And it is about exceptionalism, right, as well. So, you know, again, the paradox of the exceptional and then the incredibly mundane of like day to day, gutting out the practices and so forth, it's all there. So it's melodrama at its finest. That's a great point to end on because I love melodrama. This, this actually, you've answered something for me because I love soap opera. I love melodrama. And there's an element of sports to that, that especially narrative investment in characters and their emotions. And there's something about the Cubs saga, I guess I can't, can't quite let go of. I got to see the next serialized season of, of Cubs baseball. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. And, and this is the thing too, you're talking about lifetime loyalties, lifetime fandoms. This is like the 47-year-old soap opera. People have an everyday connections, both everyday and seasonal connection, as intensive as that with family members. Or it can cause, you know, like Sox Cubs, it can cause a family feud that's like Hatfield and McCoys, right? So, yeah, I think the intense emotional investment, the route to community it can provide, the sense of connection to home in an otherwise somewhat disparate media world. All of these things really are kind of at the root of, you know, the melodramatic joy of media and, you know, why we engage with it. All right. And the pain, unfortunately, the pain. too. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. But which there is joy in feeling pain. To, I mean, I wouldn't keep coming back, right? If 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 I genuinely didn't want to experience heartbreak again and again, I I wouldn't be watching sports. There must be some joy in heartbreak. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for helping me work through my sports emotions. There's always next year. Yes, exactly. All right. Thanks so much for joining Echomedia. Thank you. Somehow. Chris found it easier to talk to Vicki Johnson than to her own podcast partner, Michael. But their responsibilities in the booth meant that sooner or later, they'd have to work it out. Wouldn't they? Could they? So we find them trying to repair their relationship. Well, uh, I'm back. I was I was listening just outside the door to that. Thank you for coming that. back. It, well, I was listening just outside the door to that interview. It really did help me come to terms with some of my emotions, at, at the very least with me, my, my Cubs emotions. I feel like I'm at least a little more uh, grounded and, and okay with, the, with that emotion. You know, I, I like the Cubs too, but you have to admit, I mean... What? What now, Michael? Well, they are the most overpaid, underperforming team in professional sports oh my god what, what kind of monster are what? you i haven't been through enough was it was it something now I said? you're gonna pull that on me what you truly are you human are you even do you have human emotions inside of you or are you a monster i have feelings i am horrified right now i am horrified by by you you are a monster you need to calm down chris Is there something inside Michael? Something he can't control? Something monstrous? Let's listen in as he talks to Lisa Schmidt about just what this horror might be. 
I am speaking to Lisa Schmidt at Champlain College in Sherbrooke, Quebec, where she's a professor. Welcome to Acamedia. Thank you very much, Michael. I was hoping to talk to you to revisit a conversation about um, horror and affect uh, that that you and I have talked about it to some degree in the past, but which might have changed a little bit in the intervening years since we've talked about it. And that's fundamentally, um, you know, kind of building upon um, some arguments that you were making in your article about uh, about television as being. Um, I mean, the title of the article is television. Horror's Original Home, an article that you did in Horror Studies. You made a pretty convincing case that horror should be understood as as kind of being, well, as having a really terrific home on television, as opposed to being a kind of inherently filmic, immersive um, kind of kind of form. Yes. Um, well, as I I, I tried to tell a sort of long historical story and, and uh-huh. trace another, you know, a different kind of history of horror. Everyone always links it back, of course, to the the Gothic novels and uh, other kinds of Gothic forms. Yeah. But I wanted to take it on a journey from Gothic through melodrama, and particularly serialized melodrama. Well, and that was that was especially interesting because I think you know we've we've long understood that there is a kind of close symmetry between horror and melodrama in that they're, you know, like in Linda Williams characterization, they're, they're both body genres, you know, they're all about feeling and affect and stuff. But what I thought was great is that you actually talk about, about them not just being sort of sympathetically linked, but that they're actually um, kind of mutually constitutive a little bit that they, that they work together really well. Yes. Well, and I, I actually, I save in my, I said in my article, which I quickly read through before I, I oh, started great. this interview to make sure <laughs> I remembered what I said, that horror creates melodrama. It's, I mean, one of the, you know, depends on whose definition you look at, but one of the key elements of melodrama is sensationalism. And where are you going to find sensationalism if not in horror, Yeah. right? I mean, the the plot, the plots are excessive, they're, you know, highly improbable, all sorts of extreme things happen. And that is just going to generate emotion. That's going to generate melodrama, especially if you're in a situation where you have a serialized story and you've been, you know, visiting these characters week after week Mm -hmm. after week and you know them and you know their history. It just makes the, you know, the horror makes the melodrama happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, and when you wrote that article, you were talking about shows like Supernatural and Vampire Diaries, um, which are, you know, shows that are all about the feels, right? Yes, yes, they are in, in fandom <laughs> parlance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what do you think about other stuff that's that's on TV more recently? I, you know, I've been, um, and I should confess, I, I teach your article um, in a in a genre class, and I move from melodrama into horror. That's sort of the arc that I that I follow. Um, and that makes me very happy. Oh, good, <laughs> good. It makes me happy too. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that um, I kind of am interested in your feedback about is is some of the newer like what seem like kind of straight up horror sorts of shows on TV, um, American Horror Story, uh, maybe Hannibal. Oh, uh, you're lucky. I've watched all of Hannibal. Oh, very good. Uh, which I think is absolutely an amazing, amazing show, um, which was canceled, unfortunately. It was. But 
Yeah, it was just maybe too strange for for NBC. I don't know, but oh, I should should I not diss broadcast networks mm-hmm. on, you on can, your? Uh... You can say whatever you like. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I mean, that show, I mean, it was really all about a relationship between two men, right? About two mm-hmm. men who love each other deeply, Will Graham and Hannibal. And, you know, maybe maybe at the at the beginning, and if you watch it, watch the whole thing, season one has more of that classic procedural element to it. Uh-huh. But um, I don't know if you've seen season three, but... Uh, I have seen, I'm actually uh, in the middle of season two right now. Okay, in season three, it's almost like they abandon any pretense of trying to have a plot. And <laughs> it's just people meditating on feelings and thoughts week after week with, you know, very beautiful photography. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I don't want to spoil you, but okay. uh, well, that's kind. the ending is definitely a uh, melodramatic cliffhanger, you might say. Uh-huh. But... I don't know if you can call it a cliffhanger if we're not expecting it to, <laughs> right. to hear more from it. So. It's, a, it's a cliffhanger that, that the show then has to walk away from. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that that text is serial in other ways, too, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. since it's a prequel, essentially. Yes. Uh, and it's, in con- you know, it's really in conversation with all the other Hannibal texts and the movies. And I mean, the, 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 the sort of tease, I think, at the outset is that everyone watching it knows who Hannibal is mm-hmm. and nobody on the show knows who Hannibal is. And it's uh, it's kind of maddening to watch. But oh, that's an interesting way to put it. Right. Yeah. Because we're in this position of kind of omniscience about about the larger arc of the story world. Right. And they don't and they make a point of not showing him as very uh, doing a lot of his more evil Hannibal-esque sorts of things. So um, it's just our knowledge that we bring to it that that lends the kind of feeling of, oh, my God, this is horrible. These things he's doing, these things he's saying, what is what is he up to? Yeah. Yeah. Are you watching American Horror Story at all? I am not, actually. I, you know, I watched it for a season and a half, and I said to myself, no more. What's that? <laughs> I, I feel like they threw in every single horror plot on Earth into that show, and it just flounders around without a, without a direction, and I, yeah, I had enough. I was prepared to like it. I was prepared to like it. Because of the sampler kind of quality to it where it's moving from I watched one one season with I think they had everything. They had they had um they had aliens and oh god, it's been a while now. Aliens yeah. and an evil asylum and I don't know what else. Everything was in there. Right. So yeah, I stopped. That's but okay. I have I have been watching uh, Walking Dead, and I've been thinking about Melodrama. Yeah. What do you Walking think about Dead that? Because it is pretty intense. I mean, talk about melodrama, uh, you know, horror enabling melodrama. And now mm-hmm. I'm going to spoil people, but this is from like two season two, I think. Mm-hmm. But when you know when Lori has to give birth to her baby, and she's alone and she's bleeding out, and they know she's not going to make it. Mm-hmm. I mean. To go in there looking for your wife's body and to find that she has been eaten. <laughs> it's bad enough she dies, dies in childbirth, right? But then right. she's also eaten. And, so, and he actually finds the zombie there with a nice big full stomach full of his wife, you know? So, I mean, 
<laughs> and he, he loses his mind for a while. <laughs> so he's kind of over. Yeah, he becomes kind of overcome by the hysteria of the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He becomes pretty uh, nuts for a while. Yeah. Do you feel vindicated? Vindicated by vindicated in the sense that um, so many television series have have just completely, you know, they've, they've doubled down on classic horror in many ways, you know, kind of gothic stuff, but then yeah. also these, you know, like, you know, pieces of the slasher and, you know, all kinds of other stuff and, and obviously zombies. Yeah, I do. Oh, and speaking of the slasher, Scream. Sure. Anyway, um, the more I watch, the more horror shows I watch, I think the more I, it's just melodrama everywhere. And, uh, but it's because of the serial seriality of it too. I mean, you just can't help but start dwelling on emotions and character and, and that, I think, it, the more time you spend with a character, right. it's inevitable. And so the the kind of fusing of, like, anxiety about what's happening, about, you know, kind of the kind of classic horror stuff from Hannibal is is completely intertwined with what will happen to Will and kind of protecting his psyche and wondering whether or not he will, you know, be exonerated and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, week after week, he's becoming, you know, more, um, well, more sick. And there was actually, you know, fans, one of the common mantras, I was kind of in the Hannibal fandom, full disclosure, for a little while. The fandom mantra was, somebody help Will Graham. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. And he never does get any help. It just gets worse and worse and worse. He's just dangling out there. Yeah. I was just thinking, it made me think about, you know, melodramatic identification. There's that that article by um, Ian Ang. I don't, she talks about it. And why would fans want to identify with Sue Ellen, you know, when she's so miserable uh, week after week after week? Yeah, identifying with suffering. Yeah. And that's what's going on with Hannibal and with Will Graham and and Rick, I guess, on Walking Dead. And Mm -hmm. I haven't, I don't fully understand it, except I think... I don't. I guess we just like to we connect with people who are suffering for some reason. So yeah, yeah, and it's and that you know that kind of melodramatic identification is you know it's not kind of a classic psychoanalytic identification, but it's a it is an empathetic mm-hmm. kind of relationship to character, and in that sense, it's really not a a, a big leap at all to go from identifying with a the, you know the long put upon uh tortured wife Sue Ellen from Dallas to um to someone who's in this kind of not not just figuratively but literally monstrous situation. literally yeah literally in the worst possible you know Rick in the, the zombie apocalypse yeah. or or will losing his mind and then being framed for murder and then everything else so yeah yeah so maybe it is, it's like a literalization of the moral occult in a way, you know, the sort of search for that moral, uh, moral universe that's yeah. underlying there. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is, this is really fascinating. So, um, what are you watching right now? Do you have, do you uh, have anything, are you watching anything that, that kind of captures your, um, well, I'm still melodramatic identification. Um, yeah? <laughs> they're all going on 11 seasons now. It is and, remarkable uh, that that show has had such legs. Yeah, it does. And and I wrote another article about it, too, where I, I dwelled at length upon the intense melodrama of the end of season mm-hmm. 10. So 
they're still going and they're still pretty heavy on that. Um, they're starting to approach, you know, the, the, the running lengths of, of some soap operas. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes they definitely get into that soap opera territory. Mm-hmm. But that's okay with me. I mean, that's what I'm there for, right? For the feels. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and they need you. Yes. They need you. Mean you they to be, need me, the fans. Yeah, they need you to be given the feels for the. Yeah. So oh, that and they, they know it too. The They're smart about it. Yeah, yeah, they do. I think that's how they've managed to stay alive so long. Is. Uh, is by, uh, you know, reaching out to the fans and saying, yeah, we know what you want. <laughs> we'll give you the melodrama. Um, You know what else I've been watching? I hesitate to admit. Yeah, Teen Wolf. Oh, yeah? That's definitely a soap opera. Well, and I don't mean that as an insult. I yeah, mean it in the best sure. possible way. It's just a soap opera with werewolves, though, right? But again, the werewolves make everything. The stakes are always so much higher when you have werewolves involved. Right. And witches and spirits and whatnot. So, is it uh, how much? How much of the kind of classic monster movie? I haven't. I haven't seen it. So, um, does it? Does it have much of that kind of old horror element? No, really, really not. I mean, these are these are werewolves with hairless chests, and whenever there's a fight, oh, they rip their kind of like off. disco werewolves. <laughs> Hairless werewolf, although they do sprout um, sideburns, but it's it's all about the beautiful bare chest, which is a really, which is a really, really weird way to treat a werewolf. It is. Well, yeah, but that's okay. I don't want to speculate as to why that is, but I, I think a lot of the audience, maybe younger, younger women too, maybe they we like our. Well, we, I don't want to, I don't include myself that list. They, they enjoy the, uh, hairless were- werewolves, but. And who's to judge? Oh God. And how could I forget Penny Dreadful? Amazing. Did you watch it? I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. It's like everything that makes the end of the 19th century wonderful, all packed up in this wonderful mashup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in the second season, too, they just sort of, they, how can I put this? Like, they just hit another peak and they, they're, okay, I'm, I'm getting lost in fanishness now, I'm afraid. Right. But, you know, you have scenes where everything's raining blood and it's taking totally sincerely. Like, there's no irony whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's just pure gothic. Well, sometimes that happens. What? You know, the, the raining blood thing. You know, it's just the way of the world. Mm-hmm. I'm reluctant to kind of follow the the taxonomic impulse and start like drawing boundaries around genres and that kind of thing. Yeah. But it really is remarkable how fully uh, this kind of new cycle of, of TV horror seems completely wrapped up in, in, you know, multiple different kinds of modes of melodrama, but, but that, that's, it seems like such a, like such a kind of natural fit or, or it seems so fully realized that it's really kind of settled in as, as a kind of set of fairly consistent tropes and narrative devices. Yeah. It seems to have become so uh, common. You could almost call it a kind of a genre or a cycle or something, I guess, Mm -hmm. but I wonder if people are, you know, consciously saying, you know, we got to make another one of those supernatural shows with lots and lots of, you know, crying men in them. Yeah. Which, of course, happens. Yeah. Yeah. 
or yeah. or they just you know they're like I'm going to do a horror show and then the melodrama just happens as part of of kind of the extended serial narrative form and that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder. Yeah. Well, this is good stuff to to think about and good stuff to watch. If you had one show that you would recommend to watch for the feels, horror or not, what is it? Because that's the that is the theme of this issue that we're doing is it's all about the feels. Wow. Uh I have to go with Supernatural again. I'm All in right. I'm heavily invested. I mean, and when you have 10 years of history with a of plot and character, I mean, the amount of feel that you can that you can build up is mm-hmm. is pretty intense. I mean, if if the characters have a true memory of everything that they've been through, when you when you have a sort of season finale crisis, that's it's huge i mean you the more time you spend you spend with it the more emotional it's going to be all right on that note thank you for the tip and thank you for talking to us oh thank you for having me it was fun according to a recent nationwide survey more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette Three leading independent research organizations asked this question of 113,597 doctors What cigarette do you smoke, Doctor? The brand name most was Camel. Now, you probably enjoy rich, full flavor and cool mildness in a cigarette just as much as doctors do. And that's why, if you're not a Camel smoker now, try a Camel on your T-zone. That's T for taste and T for throat. Your true proving ground for any cigarette. See if Camel's rich flavor of superbly blended choice tobaccos isn't extra delightful to your taste. See if Camel's cool mildness isn't in harmony with your throat. See if you too don't say Camel's suit my T-zone to a T. You've come back. I don't know if I can trust you anymore. I don't know... I don't know how we're going to work through this. I don't know what else to do. This podcast might just be done. Can you ever forgive me? I did it with our best interest at heart. I was trying to help you. I thought you were overworked. I knew that you were having a difficult time, and I, and I thought bringing in some extra help would take off some of the stress and make it a little bit easier to manage. I don't know if I can emotionally deal with this anymore. What about all the people we would disappoint? What about... What about the Durf Fund? Oh, the Durf Fund. What about Isla at the University of Notre Dame? Isla at the University of Notre Dame. Denison University. Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University. He's counting on us. What about Todd Thompson and his golden years? Yeah. And then, well, Vicki Johnson and Lisa Schmidt, too. You know, we're really grateful to them. Give me one last chance to make it up to you. How about if you come join me for dinner? Dinner? Yeah. What kind of dinner? I'd like to have you over for dinner. I was thinking about making Florentine sweetbreads. Sweetbreads? They're dusted in an almond flour with dried fruit and acacia honey. Pretty good. That sounds so rich. That sounds too rich. I'd feel guilty for overindulging. I never feel guilty about anything I eat. What were these sweetbreads Hannibal, I mean Michael, was talking about? Just what kind of dinner did Bedelia, I mean Chris, have in store for her? Will Michael and Chris come to terms with a new era for Acomedia and for each other? Will we ever hear Acomedia again? Will I, Elena Levine, take advantage of this narrator gig 
to plug my new edited collection, Cupcakes, Pinterest, and Lady Porn, Feminized Popular Culture in the Early 21st Century from University of Illinois Press. Tune in next month to find out.